If you own sunglasses, you know, scratches happen. With Revent Optics, you can replace your lenses and save your sunglasses. Revent Optics offers high-quality polarized, non-polarized, and prescription replacement lenses for any brand. Starting at just $24 a pair, they're crystal clear, guaranteed to fit, and backed by a one-year warranty. So go to reventoptics.com MLB. That's R-E-V-A-N-T optics.com MLB today and get 20% off your first pair of lenses with offer code MLB. If you're like me and you're not so great at planning ahead when it comes to travel, you have to try Hotel Tonight. Hotel Tonight is an app that helps you find amazing hotel deals at the last minute up to seven days in advance. It's perfect for a spontaneous getaway or indulging in a little staycation. All it takes is 10 seconds, just three taps and a swipe. So what are you waiting for? Get in on these killer last minute deals and download the Hotel Tonight app now. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. I'm joined by my colleague and co-host who went solo on the last episode, Michael Bauman, starting a solo act. It was scary. Don't ever leave me again. I missed you too much. (laughs) Remember when we used to each alternate episodes of this podcast and I would do one and then you would do one? That was weird. Yeah, I, I, it, it felt really weird. And doing the ad reads and everything, I realized I talk a lot yeah. faster when you're not around. So <laughs> yeah. I think I like we had like a 35-minute podcast for, for Thursday, and I think it probably would have been close to an hour if I were speaking at the, the normal pace. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was just saying off air that my occasionally leaving the house over the last couple of weeks has really put a, a crimp in our podcasting plans. Usually it's are you free at this time? Yes. <laughs> Just blank response, always free. Hasn't been the case for the last couple of weeks. I was in Kansas last time, as I mentioned. Today, I'm in Boston. I'm at Saber Seminar, which for those who don't know, is an annual nerd Fencing conference. competition. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That'd be fun too. But this is uh, just a, a big convocation of baseball nerds, myself included. It happens in Boston every summer and it's uh, for charity and it's a great event. Lots of smart people speak there. Rick Hahn was speaking today, Gene Afterman from the Yankees. There are also some just very wonky numbers-based presentations. And one thing I just wanted to mention because it intrigued me, there was a presentation earlier today by Joe Rosales from Baseball Info Solutions, the company that charts everything that happens in major league games and sells that data to teams and media companies. And evidently the shift has plateaued, and you will be happy to hear this, Thank I know, God. because yeah, you are a great is... <laughs> enemy of the shift, and you would prefer that there would be no shifts at all, but that hasn't happened, but the skyrocketing ascent of the number of shifts has stopped this year. So looking every season since 2011, it's gone way up. So 2011, there were 2,350 infield shifts in the majors. Then the next year, almost 5,000. Year after that, almost 7,000. Then 13,000, almost 18,000. Last year, there were 28,000. So it was just you know year after year after year. And this year, we are on pace for 27,968 shifts as we speak. I know everyone listens to podcasts to hear a litany of numbers, but that would be the, the first year since the shift phenomenon started that there would not be more shifts than there had been the previous season. So I've been wondering when we would reach the top, when teams would feel like, okay, that's enough shifting. And evidently, this is it. 
Cool. I I was wondering because this hasn't it hasn't lowered league wide uh, league wide Babbitt that much, right? No, not at all. I, I don't I don't believe. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, there's probably some confounding, you know, whatever the statistical right. term, because I imagine exit velocity is going up, and yes. you know, we can only measure that back a couple of years. But yeah. yeah, that's it's a relief because I just wrote the the big thing on Thursday about um, yeah. the three true outcomes and how strikeouts and home runs are sort of in a runaway explosion mm-hmm. uh, right yeah. now. They're reaching pandemic levels, so maybe that that's mm-hmm. another thing that'll plateau. Although you know, shifting is a strategic thing, not a a function of men getting bigger and stronger, which does seem to you know only go in one direction throughout the course of modern human history. So who knows? Right. You know, if, if if I ran a team, any you know, anybody over 240 pounds who is a position player would learn how to drag bunt, but you know, <laughs> yes, I'm I, not I in charge. I agree with that, although I'm not uh, anti-shift as a blanket policy necessarily. I'm I'm definitely pro-strategies to counter the shift, which many hitters, for some good reasons and maybe for some not-so-good reasons, have not really embraced. But but yeah, if you look at the numbers just based on where guys hit the ball, when they pull the ball, obviously a lot fewer of those balls are becoming hits on the ground. But when they hit the ball on the ground the other way, many, many more of those balls are becoming hits Mm -hmm. because there's a a hole that's open there by the shift. And so I think it's probably a combination of that, just what you gain in some places, you lose in others. And then, as you mentioned, probably guys are just hitting the ball harder. And so if the shift were not happening, we would see BABIP increasing and we're not seeing that. So it's probably working. I think it's I think it's working. Baseball Info Solutions calculations suggest that it's working. And just the fact that teams are shifting this much to me suggests that it's working, that there are a lot of smart people working for these baseball teams and they have all concluded that it's working. But I did wonder when we would reach the ceiling and it seems as if we have. So I figured I'd, I'd better let you know about that because <laughs> I know how I'm you so feel excited. about yeah. the shift. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad you did. All right. So I've got a couple banter things as well. Uh, The first one is, Mm -hmm. uh, well, actually, they're both related to uh, post-deadline prospect promotions, which I talked Mm -hmm. about a little bit on Thursday with Eric Longenhagen, and we could have gone on and on and on and gone down to, uh, for instance, Max Fried. Uh, the Braves left-hander mm-hmm. uh, who has just come up. I just think it's interesting that, you know, Lucas Giolito, who's been covered like no high school right-hander since like, I don't know, like Doc Gooden, you know, and yeah. <laughs> who was at the top of prospect lists and was, you know, the centerpiece of one of the biggest deals of the offseason. Uh, he was not actually the first pitcher taken from his own high school baseball team. Well, he was going to play his senior year at Harvard-Westlake in California, and then got Tommy John and wound up going uh, several spots after Max Fried, a left-hander who went seventh overall to the Padres and has since bounced around and is now uh, sucking up innings in Atlanta. So congratulations to to Max Fried. Like, you know, it's it's not uncommon for like UCLA or Vanderbilt or, or Florida rotations to get a couple a couple different pitchers in the first round, but it's virtually unheard of for a high school. So, you know, this mm-hmm. was just an opportunity to bring that up. And uh, the other guy who got called up who had a cup of coffee uh, last year is Phillies catcher Jorge Alfaro, last seen ending Fernando Rodney's life in the World Baseball Classic. <laughs> um, I, yeah. you know, I don't, I th- this is important because Phillies catching has been just catastrophic since Carl, like yes. even since Carlos Ruiz started to get old, he wasn't that good 
um, even his, his last year or so in Philadelphia. But there are certain catchers who are just athletic freaks. And Alfaro is one of those guys whose baseball skills have had to sort of catch up to to his speed and his power and his throwing arm. And, you know, he's still sort of refining things as he's figuring out in the major leagues. But if he does, he's going to be one of those uh, must watch players. So I'm mm-hmm. excited to see him uh, get a, a longer taste of Major League Baseball. And it's some, you know a long overdue thing for the Phillies to, to get excited about. Yeah, I have two responses to this. The first is that I can always count on you to know a baseball player's schooling history, which is yeah. not something that it's like one of those facts, biographical facts about a player that people will just cite offhand, oh, he went to this school. I, I have no idea where anyone went to school. I barely remember where I went to school. I can always count on you to know that because well, of your this is, affinity I mean, for college baseball. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm usually pretty good with college baseball, but like, you know, high school, I know sometimes, you know, sometimes I know where like if the guy's from Atlanta-ish, you know, very rarely mm-hmm. can I name the school, but this was a special circumstance because, you know, it's yeah. not every day you see two first round pitchers uh, from the same high school. Yeah. The other thing about baseball that everyone else knows and remembers and I don't, I feel like, is uniform numbers. I have no idea I'm, what number anyone is ever. And I, I don't know why, because I grew up in New York watching mm-hmm. the Yankees all the time. And it, it was helpful to know Yankee uniform numbers because there's no name on the back. But still, I just never remembered anyone's number. I just I, I have a few guys, but for the most part, and the Yankees have retired most of them. So that makes it even easier. Yeah, most to of their numbers. Just from right. One. From zero to 99. Yeah. yeah. And yet still, I like if someone says, oh, who's the best player who had uniform number X? And people will know that. And I will never know that. And I don't know why. I'm good with retired players. I like I started getting really bad at this in like the past five years. Maybe that's the thing that fell out of my head when I started learning mm-hmm. where everybody went to college. Yeah. I wonder if it was just more helpful to know uniform numbers in the past because now there's really never any confusion about who's playing where, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, A, we can just look on our phones or on the screens that are everywhere if we want to see who someone is. It's it's There are graphics everywhere, whether you're in the ballpark or watching on TV. There's never really any confusion about who's who. And so to me, it, it has just become kind of an extraneous fact. Yeah, I wonder if there's there's probably also a difference between like when we were growing up, like you were probably watching the Yankees 120 times a year. I was watching the Phillies 120 times a year and very little like in the way of national baseball. But now we're, you know, we're mm-hmm. it, it's just, you know, we're watching a couple dozen games a year for, you know, for a couple dozen teams. And so you don't get intimately acquainted with the roster. And I think there's more roster turnover anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. nowadays with yeah. the 10 the day DL. So, you know, here here we are making excuses for us, for, <laughs> yeah. for ourselves, not knowing who wears what uniform number. Hugh Darvish <laughs> looks weird in 21, by the way, speaking of, mm. of uniform numbers. He also- Pretty good in Dodger Blue, though. Oh, man, he was so good. And, you know, he was so good despite wearing Chad Billingsley's pants. <laughs> like, the Dodgers had all week to get him a uniform that fits. And somehow, yeah. <laughs> you know, Hugh Darvish is one of those guys who- he looks bigger than his measurables uh, once you get up mm-hmm. close to him. And they still found pants that just like billow off of him. And <laughs> they just, yeah. I mean, they had all week to figure out, you know, figure out what size he wears and they just couldn't yeah. make it work. So there's, there's something to, to improve on after a scoreless first outing. Yeah. It was like the CC Sabathia fit. Mm-hmm. AJ Puck is the king of, of this. Fit. 
mm-hmm. um, the uh, the Oakland A's minor league left-hander. My other response was going to be about the Phillies because, I mean, we could probably do a whole podcast on this, but I know that one of the main talking points around the Phillies most recently has just been whether they are going to be the team that proves that tanking and rebuilding is not an automatic process, that you you don't necessarily come out the other side of that couple years of losing as one of the best teams in baseball just because they are still the worst team in baseball record-wise and a lot of their prospects and young players have not stalled or failed to yeah it's, right it's so. not going it's not going as bad as maybe some of the reports are but it's it's still not going mm-hmm. great yeah so like what's the the level of confidence here i mean it's it's fairly early for most of these guys they've they've been bad for a while now but that was because of the the tail end of the world series teams but the actual in earnest rebuilding process has not been going on for so long but this was kind of the year when people expected them to take a step forward and they have not and in some cases have taken steps back so are you worried now or should Phillies fans be worried that they're not going to pull out of this to the extent that teams like you know the Astros or or the Cubs or or just I mean those are those seem like they should be exceptions to use them as examples because things have worked out so well for them on the yeah. other side of things but how do you how do you feel about where their rebuild stands so I think we said this when we did an Astros show a couple months ago that the Cubs made this look a lot easier than it is. Mm-hmm. But I mean, they, they made a couple strange decisions. You know, I think one of them was taking Mickey Moniak first overall. And he just, the reports on him uh, in his first full season of pro ball have not been good. Uh, JP Crawford, who was like, I, yeah. I think this would look a lot different if, if JP Crawford were up in the majors by now and it's taken him longer Mm -hmm. and i think he's he's close and he's finally sort of getting back on track and you know i think one of the other things is is aaron nola has been really really good and nobody Mm -hmm. has really seemed to have noticed so like it's not a disaster and this was always going to take a long time and you're going down to guys like moniac and kevin gowdy and sixto sanchez who are all still in the very very low levels of the minor leagues who like would ostensibly be part of the next a good Phillies team, and they're still several years away. So it's like that that middle generation of of prospects and young players that were supposed to come up, like you know, and Michael Franco and and guys like that, yeah. and and Aaron Altair, of course, has been mm-hmm. really good. He's and, been good. Well, Nola, he's but, on the DL again, but you know, Vince yeah. Velasquez has been on and off the DL all year. I mean, as far as our you know, should people panicking that or should people panic? That doesn't matter. It's Philadelphia. They're panicking no matter what so this matters to me less than it did five years ago you know just because mm-hmm. i've gotten a lot of the emotional attachment beaten out of me but yeah it's not panic time yet you know it's it's just mm-hmm. it's taken a while yeah all right well speaking of a team that has had everything go right for it shall we oh wait one more thing because last week you mocked my big thoughts about eduardo nunez and uh, through Friday's <laughs> yes. games, he is hitting 469, 500, 875 as a member of the Boston Red Sox. So I'm declaring <laughs> victory on that one. Yeah, exactly what you projected mm-hmm. for him when when they traded for him. He could go oh for the next two weeks and he'd still still have a good batting line. Still be better than Devin Marrero. Yeah, that's true. Well, between him and, and Devers, things are going well. So... We want to talk about the Dodgers just because you can't not talk about the Dodgers right now. They 
one again recently before we started recording it's gotten to the point where you hardly even need to check the box scores it's like if you want to know the score that they won by and and how they won you can check the details but the outcome is is rarely in doubt and so as we speak they are on pace for 115 wins if they keep playing with the crazy winning percentage that they have played with thus far and of course, we just said they've got Darvish. We talked about them briefly in the trade deadline podcast last week, but everyone's talking about them now as, you know, will they be the team to break the Mariners record, tie the Mariners record for wins in a regular season, 116. And the amazing thing is that they haven't even really overperformed in any dramatic way. Like, I, I think even if you go back That's my and favorite look at thing the, too. Yeah. yeah, if you go back at like the 2001 Mariners, for instance, I, I'm pretty sure I remember they had quite a few more wins than their Pythagorean record based on their run differential would have suggested. Like, they got lucky. They had some good timing and, and clutch hitting and, and that sort of thing going for them, as you would expect with any yeah. team that is historically great. Like, I mean, they they're, were still they're, amazing. Like, yeah, their Pythag yeah. was was 109 and 53 anyway. So, I yeah, mean, it was right. a great so. team, but also they were a plus seven. Yeah, right. And the Dodgers are not just, I mean, going by their base runs record, as I look right now on, on Fangraphs, they're only plus three, which uh, many other teams are are better than that. And and even the Dodgers are, what, uh, plus two above their Pythag record right now. So basically their underlying performance has suggested that they are just like a true talent 100, I don't know, 12 win team or or 14 win team or something like that, which is crazy. And, you know, obviously any team that's playing at that level, you don't expect them to continue playing at that level. But, I mean, they've just been incredible and they made themselves better at the deadline in some ways. Yeah. And, you know, even when stuff goes wrong for them, like they, you know, Kershaw goes down and they go out and trade for Darvish. You know, Yasmani Grandal is having trouble with back spasms right now, but it's okay because Kyle Farmer hit a walk-off double in his first uh first major league plate appearance and and, and Austin Barnes is hitting 286 410 519 so yeah. you know <laughs> like everything's going right it's and there's a there's a um a moment in Saving Private Ryan that uh, in the very first first scene where they're on the beach and Giovanni Ribisi's tending to a wounded soldier and um, a bullet hits the soldier in the head and kills him and he just throws his helmet on the ground and says just give us a fucking chance and like that's how <laughs> Jacob deGrom looked last night or on Friday yeah. night on the mound like he was doing everything he could and like running up 80 you know 80 pitch counts through through three innings and change and just this relentless like Chris Taylor, yeah. he's like 60 or 70 plate appearances below the league leaders, and he's still like around the top 10 in the league and wins above replacement. He's playing all over the mm -hmm. field. I mean, it, just the the contributions they've gotten from rookies with um, uh, with Bellinger and, and Barnes, and it's almost unrealistic how well things have gone. Yeah. I mean, at the beginning of the season, we were all marveling at Houston's lineup and how they had like 10 or 11 guys with above average offensive stats. And now you look at the Dodgers and it's exactly the same thing. Like looking at their top nine guys via plate appearances. 
their only below average hitter is Chase Utley and he's barely below average. And then that's not even counting guys like Hernandez, who's been good off the bench and Austin Barnes, who has been great in a, a smaller sample. And I mean, it's just top to bottom. They are very strong and they do everything well, as you would expect, given this record. And so I guess there are two big thoughts about this. The first is whether the regular season wins record is something that, I mean, it's not really like a a mythical type record in baseball, the way it is when the Warriors were chasing it just, uh, you know, a couple of years ago in basketball, that was a big deal. I don't know if it's seen as such a big deal in baseball. Maybe, I mean, we're finding out now, people are clearly pretty excited about this story, but no one really thinks of like the 2001 Mariners as a legendary team because they didn't win the World Series. They didn't they, even win the pennant. You know, right. And so that's kind of an unfair thing, really, because obviously the six months of the regular season is a better indication of your talent and your skill and your success than what happens in one month of randomness. But that is kind of how we evaluate the success of baseball teams now. Yeah, I've I've got a th- a couple theories on that. One is that like the just just thinking about translating it to basketball, like people who love Michael Jordan like really love Michael Jordan and like because he was involved in that that 72 and 10 Bulls team, like that that record meant a lot to them. Um mm-hmm. and honestly, everybody loved the 2001 Mariners, but like not it's not like a you know, they didn't have the best player of all time on, on that team or, or well, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, the best player of all time until LeBron James came around uh, on that team. And the other thing is they were, you know, if you're going to talk about the best team of all time from that era, then and, you know, I would restrict it to for me, anything that happened before the strike is sort of like it might as well be the Old Testament. So, like, I don't even <laughs> think about the 1906 Cubs, but mm-hmm. most people I think if you're you know, the best team in the past 30 years would say the 98 Yankees who were right there and mm-hmm. 114 games and cakewalk to a World Series title. So, you know, I it's the the best team ever argument. I think it is, you know, you're right. It's sort of divorced from win totals to a certain extent in a way that it's probably not uh, mm-hmm. in, in basketball and football. Yeah. And maybe that has something to do with the fact that in basketball, if you're the best regular season team, you are also very likely to win Mm -hmm. the championship. And and there were discussions about that with the Warriors, too. Like if they get this record and they don't win a title, then does that mean as much? And when they lost their title, are they as great a team as everyone says they are, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, the 2001 Mariners, very fun team, lots of fun and great players. I think my favorite thing about that team is that they did that right after losing A-Rod. They, and like, consecutive they, years they lost. Randy Johnson, Ken Griffey Jr., and A-Rod. Yeah, and then they win 116 games. So, yeah, that's pretty amazing. They just had so much talent on that team. And the Dodgers have that legendary guy, right? I mean, Kershaw counts, I think, mm-hmm. as as that caliber of player. I mean, so. I... I don't know. Like, I don't know how much you want to fight me over Kershaw versus Pedro, but I'd call Kershaw the best pitcher I've ever seen at this point. Yeah. If you just look at pure peak season or two, I think Pedro still takes it, but Kershaw's getting up into the career territory of Pedro perhaps. But yeah. And so that's one thing is that just what does this record mean in baseball when you really have two completely different games, essentially the regular season and the postseason? 
this is is just different. It's not like if you are the regular season powerhouse in basketball, you are very likely to continue being a powerhouse in the postseason. That's not necessarily the case in, in baseball. And so if this Dodgers team gets knocked out in the NLDS or something after winning close to uh, 116 games, some people will attribute that to their strength of character or choking or I swear to fortitude. God, if, like if Kershaw puts up like a, uh, a 380 ERA and four playoff starts this year and the yeah. Dodgers lose in the NLCS, like I'm switching over to basketball full time. I just <laughs> I cannot take that happening again. Yeah. Are there no narratives about choking in basketball? Because I, I I think I may there's have heard plenty, a thing but or two I, about There's plenty, LeBron but I'm not tired of that From time yet. to time. Uh, yeah, so I think that that sort of story that people manufacture and fabricate is is there in every sport. But but yeah, if that happens to the Dodgers, I mean it's it's silly because if you are the best team in baseball for six months, then you are the best team in baseball, regardless of what happens over a, a few short playoff series in October. But it is a distinct possibility, and that's the other thing that I want to bring up here because I think that a lot of people are treating it almost as just manifest destiny that the Dodgers are going to the World Series, that we're going to get an Astros-Dodgers World Series, or, or that the Dodgers will be there because they are the best team that we've seen in some time. And, and that's the way it worked last year, right? Like the Indians were maybe the best team in the league or very close to it. They made the World Series. The Cubs were the best team in the National League. They made and won the World Series. And so that is not usually the case. And I think maybe it will be seen as a big upset, a big disappointment if the Dodgers don't make it that far. But there is a really good chance with any baseball team that you're not going to make it that far. No matter how great you are, you still really have to take the field over the great regular season team. And if you look at the numbers right now, like the Dodgers have roughly a 20% chance of winning the World Series. If you just kind of average the fan graphs and baseball prospectus postseason odds right now, which is really good. You don't usually get a one in five chance to win the World Series in August because there are 10 playoff teams and there are pennant races and, and so on. But the Dodgers have a really good chance of winning the World Series for a baseball team, but one in five is not really that great a chance. And so I think if they do put up some kind of historic mark and then they get bounced, they will be looked on as either chokers or just not remembered as an all-time great team. And if they keep this up for the next couple months, they should be, regardless of what happens after that. Yeah, you brought up the Astros, you know, speaking of teams that are getting all the breaks, Tyler White, who looked so lost, he could have been part of the Muppet movie uh, running gag about finding Harry Krishna uh, homered in three consecutive at bats over over Friday and Saturday. So Uh like they're they're getting contributions from from everybody. And yeah, I like I don't know that there's been this goes back to the Neil Payne conversation, which I keep referencing because I keep mm-hmm. thinking about it. Like, I don't remember the yeah. last time we had two teams this far out ahead of the pack, like Cleveland and, mm-hmm. and the Cubs last year were. I don't know that I was like sure that Cleveland was the second best team in baseball, but, you know, I, I certainly didn't think that they had like fluked their way into a World Series, particularly as dominant as they were in the the AL bracket uh, in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. But like I don't re- I don't remember the last time there was a, a season with with two teams this far out ahead of the pack. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, right. And I mean, you can make a case that maybe the Dodgers are a better postseason team even than a regular season team, which is uh, another kind of incredible thing about them. I mean, if Kershaw is back and you have Darvish and Wood and Hill healthy, and that's just kind of a roll of the dice, and we'll see where those guys stand when the postseason starts. But with those guys and the bullpen reinforcements that would be coming from starters moving to the the bullpen and to say nothing, guys this is a good bullpen anyway. acquired. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, I mean, give them a good bullpen and a great top of the rotation. And if anything makes a team better suited for the postseason than the regular season, it's that. And so maybe you think that those postseason odds underrate the Dodgers' chances of winning the World yeah. Series. But even if you they, think that, yeah, you know, I think what they are do. they, a, a one in yeah. four shot or something like right. that? They're, they're still an underdog. Any team in baseball is an underdog once you get to the postseason. Exactly. Like we're taking this incredible thing, the likes of which the, you know, we haven't seen in a generation. And here we are inadvertently like softening the ground for when it all collapses. <laughs> like, I, you know, yes. like I found myself when I, when I was writing up the Dar- the Darvish trade, like getting really carried away, like getting really excited about mm-hmm. this team. And like, I'd almost like, I almost don't want to know that this is, <laughs> that this yeah. has a very good chance of, of not ending in a title, but I don't know. Yeah. No, no, I'm I'm enjoying this. I like outlier performances and and this is one. So I am going to be following this very closely, as will everyone else for the, the next couple of months. Not and just out of professional obligation. Challenge the yeah. record. Yeah, no, right, because this is fun. All right, let's take a quick break and then we will be back with more on A Rod and the Red Sox and the Orioles in just a minute. Do you have a pair of sunglasses with scratch lenses? You either threw them into a junk drawer or you're still wearing them, squinting through the scratches. Thanks to Revent Optics, you no longer have to live with those scratches or keep buying pair after pair of new sunglasses. Instead, you can save your sunglasses and replace your lenses with high-quality polarized, non-polarized, and prescription replacement lenses available for any brand on the market. Starting at just $24 a pair, Revent Optics lenses are a fraction of the price of brand-name sunglasses. And because they test their lenses to ensure razor-sharp clarity, they're a much better option than cheap gas station shades. Revent lenses are easy to install, guaranteed to fit, and backed by a one-year warranty. And if you can't find your sunglasses listed on their website, Revent Optics can cut custom lenses for you at their lab in Portland, Oregon. So join over 500,000 customers and try them risk-free with their 60-day money-back guarantee. Plus, enjoy free shipping and free returns in the U.S. And get 20% off your first order when you use the offer code MLB. So go to reventoptics.com slash MLB. That's R-E-V-A-N-T optics.com slash MLB. That URL is case sensitive. So it's capital R, capital O. Reventoptics.com. Place your lenses. Save your sunglasses. And today's episode is also brought to you by SeatGeek. Smartest and easiest way to get tickets to every MLB game. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing the best plays of the year in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone. It's the easiest way I know of to shop for tickets. If you too get the SeatGeek app, you can be anywhere. With just a few taps, you can instantly find seats. As I mentioned last week, I went to see Ben Gibbard, composer of the Ringer MLB theme song. You can use SeatGeek for events like that, too, because SeatGeek doesn't end with sports. It also has plenty of concert, comedy, and theater tickets available. 
And no matter what event you want to attend, SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats to fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Best of all, Ringer MLB Show listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, and then enter the promo code RINGERMLB. That's all one word. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code RINGERMLB today. Okay, so we brought up Alex Rodriguez just inadvertently earlier in this podcast when we were talking about the Mariners, but we had planned to talk about A-Rod anyway, the current redeemed A-Rod. And this is something that I think MLB Slack, the Ringer Slack channel, has been very heavy on A-Rod Instagram and Twitter posts this season, just as we've tracked his transformation into beloved business mogul slash person who loves baseball and is on TV all the time and has completely changed his image as much as he possibly could in a couple of years. And so there's a, a new Redemption of A-Rod story, which is out now in The Hollywood Reporter. It is called The Redemption of A-Rod will be televised. And this is not the first magazine piece that has tried to show the human side of A-Rod. There was, I remember, a long ESPN profile, maybe when he came back from the suspension, mm-hmm. about how he had spent his time during the suspension going to school and with his daughters and apologizing to everyone. So this is in the same vein, but I think this is post his great comeback season, post his becoming a full-time Fox analyst and endearing himself to some baseball fans with his rapport with with Pete Rose and, and Frank Thomas and our former guest, Kevin Burkhart. And he is involved in television shows now. He is everywhere. He is dating J-Lo. He is... <laughs> constantly Instagramming himself in amusing poses. I am very much into the A-Rod redemption story. I, I, I've enjoyed all phases of the A-Rod story, really, but I can't blame anyone for turning against A-Rod. He did cheat and he did lie and he did get suspended. All of those things absolutely happened. And if that was it for you with A-Rod, I can't really blame you for that. But I like the guy. I've always liked the guy and been fascinated by him. And so I'm curious to see how far he can take this and how close he can come to removing the stains on his name. Yeah, I think what what's changed since the suspension is that he seems a lot more comfortable with himself. And I, you know, that's mm-hmm. I, I imagine it can't have been easy to, you know, he grew up, he was in the major leagues as a teenager. Um, right. you know, he's been a superstar since he was in, you know, since he was a senior in high school. And, you know, I can't imagine what that does to like your emotional development. So, you know, I imagine that he sort of figured out who he was. And that's, that's one thing that, that comes through in all these stories about him. I mean, the other thing is just, he's really good on TV. Like he's smart. He actually yep. knows baseball. He's, I mean, there have been very few players that good who have done any sort of analytical role, but yeah. you know, he's not just coasting by on his name. He's like curious about the game and and you know and discussing the ins and outs and very good at making it accessible. And I think most importantly, like he's having fun in in an like he understands that this is fun and he really helps the audience to have fun. Uh, you know, that's mm-hmm. all the the viral moments from last year's World Series, and. Yeah. 
you know, I, I you said you, you can't blame people for turning on him. I sort of do because <laughs> like nothing he did. This was my my refrain throughout like the latter stages of his career when like people stopped. It went beyond him not being Griffey or not being uh, Derek Jeter, like the the mm-hmm. level of hate towards him. Like he really got singled out by everybody from fans to to the media to the league. Like the league went after him. It just one of the most disgusting things that the the league has done in the past fifteen years was the was the biogenesis case. Like the the number of shady people they got into bed with to essentially mm-hmm. just screw one guy and. It's and everybody was just sort of okay with it, like up to and you know to a certain extent, even the the players in the union, because people just didn't like him. And you know that's just sort of it's not a good enough reason to to treat somebody the way that he got treated. And you know, obviously he's dating J Lo and he's got half a billion dollars in the bank, and he certainly seems happy with himself now. So he's not like you know as, as far as victims go. Uh, you know, right. he's, you know, you could, you could search for better victims, but the fact that yeah. it didn't seem to hurt him that much in the long run doesn't make the way that he was treated any more excusable. And mm-hmm. there are certain parts of it. Like he seems very, you know, the, the business conscious part of this sort of makes me feel <laughs> a little, little slimy. Like there's a little bit of, of latter day Peyton Manning to him wearing the A-Rod Corp. You know, <laughs> yes. <laughs> polo <Yeah>. shirt in <laughs> the, uh, while he's being interviewed, but you know he's he's a lot of fun on TV, and I think that I'm, you know, most of all, it's it's fun to watch him have fun, whether it's on Instagram or or on the in the Fox booth or you know in, in one of these profiles. Like it just this mm-hmm. was one thing that that he's really done is you know he's taken he's taken his punishment, and I think that for you know all the reasons that that everybody hate him, he's sort of taken stock of it and and, and owned all of it. And I think that the people tend to be forgiving when you do that when you're you know, honest mm-hmm. and, you know, you don't try to to double down and do the, you know, the I'm not owned thing. You just sort of accept that. Yeah. You, you know, this is this is a bad thing I did or this is, a, you know, something that that people don't like about me. And I'm either OK with that or I'm going to change it. And I think, you know, if you're OK with that, people will respect you more. If you try to change, then then people will eventually forgive and like you. And I think, you know, it's it's gratifying to to see that happen to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, people, it seemed like instinctively didn't like him because it seemed as if he was always trying so hard yeah. to be liked. And to me, that made him more appealing. I, I thought the fact that there seemed to be this insecurity mm-hmm. to him, even though he is this incredibly talented, gifted, wealthy, handsome, just everything has been going his way for quite some time now and obviously had the talent and really the statistical career of one of the best players ever. And yet it seemed like he did not have that kind of swagger and confidence that you see with many major leaguers who are nowhere near as talented as he was. And the fact that he really wanted everyone to like him, I thought was an endearing quality. And and yeah, maybe he acted somewhat robotic at times and and seemed as if he was trying to ingratiate himself. And, and I can understand why 
that is something that would get on people's nerves. But to me, just the fact that he was making that effort, that it was important to him, I thought was a nice contrast to someone like Bonds, for instance, who I really appreciate for yeah. the stats that he put up, you know, regardless or, of, of how he did it. I, I just uh, I marvel at what he accomplished, but obviously but was the, right, not the, really a, a sympathetic person. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> you know, you know like he, the insecurity, he didn't care if anyone liked him. Yeah, the insecurity sort of manifests is as nastiness really and it never you know never really got like there was like we don't we don't like the earnest you know please like me people which is but like we respect people whose insecurity you know turns into bullying behavior which i think is just really gross but but you know nonetheless true yeah, right. And you just don't get that mix of earnest, please like me with someone like A-Rod all that often. It's, I mean, you have every reason not to care if anyone likes you because you have everything going for you. And so, yeah, you mentioned how that caliber of player doesn't usually do TV work. And I was thinking about Pedro because we were just talking about him and he has done TV work mm-hmm. and he's really good on TV because he's charismatic and he's funny and he's perceptive. But you don't get the sense that he is hitting the books, that he is studying for hours before he goes on air. He's just kind of saying what he thinks, and it's it's compelling because it's Pedro. But Arod is clearly studious and is taking this extremely seriously, which is not something that he or any ex-player analyst necessarily has to do. You can just go out there and say, I was a legendary baseball player, and here's what I did in this situation. Here's what I thought in this situation. Here's an anecdote from my career. You can get by that way, and he is not coasting on his accomplishments. He is putting more time in, it seems, than than anyone, and so I respect that, and that is kind of part and parcel with the wanting to be liked and and earnestness. But again, that is something that I find appealing in him. So we wanted to talk about the Red Sox and the Orioles. There are two very distinctively Red Sox and Orioles stories going around here. So there's a report by Sean McAdam in the Boston media that Dave Dombrowski was essentially ordered not to trade any of the team's top prospects, that maybe that has something to do with the fact that the Red Sox didn't make any huge moves at the deadline and that the ownership was just like, all right, that's enough. We we want to save some vestige of our farm system here before we let you just completely dismantle it. And he has completely denied it. Hilarious. Oh my god. It is, right? And it, for, I have for, no idea whether this is accurate. He says it's I almost completely don't care. inaccurate. This is one of those things that's so <laughs> like it's so funny, it's so on the nose. I don't care if it's true or not. Like <laughs> it's it's yeah, cuz I mean, that has been Dombrowski's rep and obviously he has earned that rep when he was yeah. with Detroit since he has joined Boston. And he's had a lot of success doing things that way. The Tigers won a lot of games under Dombrowski. The Red Sox have won a lot of games under Dombrowski. So there is certainly a a method to it. But it is kind of funny to imagine Ben Charrington watching his farm system that he built getting dismantled. (laughs) And that's that's the best part because Charrington was so prospect huggy and cultivated such a prospect huggy atmosphere uh, around him. and like you could tell this was going to happen the moment they they hired Dombrowski like and it did mm-hmm. and you know what they got Craig Kimbrell and Chris Sale out of it and they're both yeah. you know it's the best starting pitcher in the American League this year and the best relief pitcher in the American League this year so 
whatever <laughs> like <they're, Yeah. laughs> you know right. like scoreboard and by the way you know they didn't make any big moves at the deadline eduardo nunez is hitting 465 yes. 500 whatever since since right. the trade i i and think it's devers too yeah, yeah and i well you know that's that's not dombrowski's doing because you know no doubt he would have been traded for <laughs> god only knows what at the, the deadline to yeah. if apparently if he hadn't been straight jacketed to the wall in uh in fenway park <laughs> by john henry and oh my right. god this is it's just <laughs> it's such a red Sox story and it's not just a, a great Dave Dombrowski thing. Like it's so absurd. It's, but it's so in character. Um, mm-hmm. But also like this, the palace intrigue in the midst of like a really successful team where everything seems to be going pretty well. And yet the front yeah. office is still at loggerheads with ownership. Like this is the story of the Red Sox over the past 15 years. And mm-hmm. it, it, this is just so, so in character for everybody involved. I love it. Yeah, I don't know whether I buy it, but I I enjoy it. And I think that, yeah, I mean, if it did happen, you know, look, if you hire Dave Dabrowski, this is what you're going to get. He has a long track record of doing this. Of course, he developed a lot of young talent in his early GMing days, but this is what he has become and it's been effective. And if you're hiring him and bringing him in, you know he's going to do this. And so I don't know that it would really be wise to order your GM to do or not to do something. I think often when ownership gets involved in that way, it it backfires. You, you know, ideally hire smart baseball people and let them do smart baseball things. But it is amusing and it really just kind of points to something that always happens to baseball teams because they – often you know pay lip service to the idea of building a contender but also keeping their prospects and we saw this with Theo when he was in Boston and Charrington and they were talking about building a player development machine and it would just keep churning out prospects and yet also winning at the same time and eventually they dived into the free agent market and they signed some guys that maybe they shouldn't have. And I think Bill James has acknowledged that maybe they got too far away from what they were trying to do. And it's a really hard thing to resist. Like if you're Dombrowski and you're an experienced GM, I mean, you obviously have the best interests in the organization of the organization in mind, but you're also conscious of the fact that you're not going to be GM of this team necessarily for decades here. So you want to win while you're there. You want to ensure your legacy. And part of that legacy maybe is the condition in which you leave the team. But I think fans mostly remember how the team did while you were there. And so there is kind of this moral hazard that always comes up with, do you think long term or do you think short term? Because that's what your job depends on and that's what your reputation depends on. And we've sort of seen it with the Cubs recently, too, that they've been much more willing to deal their prospects. And in their case, they have enough young players in the majors that I think they could wait for an entirely new wave of draftees to come along and still be competitive the whole time. So it's it's not as pressing in their case. But this is something that I think teams have a hard time resisting. To a certain extent, that's what the prospects are there for when you're at this point on the win curve. Like, yep. you know, Dabrowski is he 
you know, he lost a job with the Tigers, but they made the playoffs for the last five years that he was in right. charge. And, you know, he took the took the Marlins from expansion team to a world title in five years. And he took the Tigers from 119 losses to a pennant, won another pennant in, in 2012. Like he knows what he's doing. Like he knows that the you know, you're going to get burned every so often when you make a trade, you know, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe Manny Margot turns out to be, I don't know, the, the next Jim Edmonds or something like that. But, mm-hmm. you know, you're, if you bet on elite, elite talent, guys like Kimbrell, guys like Sale, as opposed to betting on prospects, even elite prospects like Yoan Mankata, you're going to, you're going to win betting on the current guys rather than betting on the, the prospects to become the guy. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, this and particularly for a team that expects to win every year, that has the money to to go and scout well and develop well, which the Red Sox generally do like this is, yeah you know, it's probably not indefinitely sustainable because you're going to win most of the time on these trades, but you're not going to win literally all the time. But that's I mean, the expectation is to win now. So, you know, you don't one thing that I think teams and Jake and I talked about this a little bit on Thursday's pod is mm-hmm. like, I wonder if the Astros were a little worried about making a bad deal for somebody like Zach Britton or Gray or whoever else they could have gotten who wasn't Francisco Liriano. If you're a process front office, you're going to be worried about winning every trade. And, you know, you might be reluctant mm-hmm. to go out and overpay for the person who's going to get you over the top. And at some point, like, you got to realize that you don't, they don't give out process, you know, they don't give out trophies for for best process. They give out trophies for making the playoffs for winning, you know, winning the pennant for winning the World Series. You know, mm-hmm. nobody remembers who the executive of the year was. Mm-hmm. And I will say that one of the reasons the Dodgers are in the enviable position they are is because they are the team that really has pulled this off, at least to this point, where they have won for years in a row and yet have also retained their prospects and have refused to trade guys like Urias and Seeger and Bellinger. And they've held on to those guys and They've come up and contributed, and obviously it's easier to do that if you have a $200 million payroll, but they've managed to do it, and it was something that Stan Kasten told me when I wrote about the Dodgers back at Grantland. He said they're trying to put themselves in a situation where they win every single year, and to this point, they have stuck to that philosophy. They've held on to those guys and yet also supplemented them and and paid lots of people money, so they are really the, the best of both worlds now. So you mentioned the Red Sox and, and the idea of continuing to scout and sign and spend, and one of the ways that you can do that and to keep your talent pipeline flowing is to look to the international market. And another team in the Red Sox division, the Baltimore Orioles, have not done that in recent no. years. <laughs> under uh, under general the general manager who took over for uh, Dave Dombrowski in Montreal and uh, yeah. former Red Sox GM himself as we bring this full circle. Yep. John Mioli of the Baltimore Sun wrote a story about how, they're tra- how the, the Orioles are trading international bonus slots. So yeah. you can't trade draft picks, Generally speaking, you can't trade draft picks in Major League Baseball, but you can trade international bonus money up to the the cap that you're allowed to to hit for free agent for international free agents. And the Orioles. So this this uh, story ran on Friday, and 
I'll, I'll quote from the story. This year's this year's market opened on July second, and about a month out, the Orioles have made six trades that included international bonus money. And in between, oh, the thirty six hours between when that story ran and when we're talking about it, the Orioles have made a seventh trade uh, involving yeah. international bonus money. Which, you know, like it's international bonus money is an asset, and you can, you know, some teams like the Phillies have been good at this throwing. $15,000 at a 17-year-old Dominican kid who throws 85 and developing him into Hector Neris or Sixto Sanchez. What the Orioles are trying to do is, you know, Duquette says, We're, we've been utilizing the international slot money to help us acquire some pitching to help our team. You could do that too. It's just very strange given the Orioles' inability. Like this is like a like a 20-year problem that they just mm-hmm. can't develop pitching internally. Like it almost goes all the way back to Mike Messina. Uh, yeah. who came up in the, like around 1990 and they just can't do it for whatever reason. And they're cutting off. Um, it comes on the heels of them being hilariously kicked out of South Korea back in, in 2012. Right. And if you just know you're not good at something, then punt on it. But it's, I, you know, it's weird and it's easy to laugh at because no other team in baseball is doing this. So and because the Orioles just aren't, you know, we talked to, when we talked to to Big Mike Bauman about this after he got drafted, <laughs> like this is a, their inability to, to develop pitching internally is is a huge issue. And they're selling away opportunities to, you know, go get in on the ground floor of somebody they might develop from scratch. One of these trades brought back Jeremy Hellickson along with a couple, mm-hmm. you know, a couple other assets. It's it's just not a very high upside way of doing business. And because and if you do something frequently enough and you get a reputation that it becomes easy to laugh at and then, you know, you get to where the Orioles are now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember Ken Rosenthal wrote a, a big piece this April, I believe, highlighting the Orioles' lack of international signings. There are no shortage of articles and, and analyses about that. And it's really striking just how little money they've spent on that market, how few players they've acquired there. And it's really hard to do that in today's game and stay competitive with the teams that are deriving enormous amounts of talent from from that route. And I mean, obviously, the Orioles have won a lot of games in the last several years, so whatever they're doing has been working for them fairly well. But the situation they find themselves in now, where they are probably going to find themselves looking in at the playoffs this year and seem to be in a very unenviable position going forward, you can pin that on the lack of international investments as much as anything else. And You just have to wonder why that is. I mean, if they just think it wasn't organizational strength and they could devote those resources better elsewhere, that is one way to do it. (laughs) But it's, I mean, given just the internationalization of the game and how many great players come from international markets, it's just completely walling off that way of acquiring talent is really putting yourself in a hole. And I don't know if it's an ownership philosophy i don't know whether it's more baseball operations yeah, you'd knows. you'd suspect it's maybe more ownership just because of how long it's been going on but and really both of them have it, been weird like they're both yeah. their ownership and baseball ops have done a lot of weird stuff over the past 10 years mm-hmm. so yeah i mean that's the sort of thing that you point to and i mean it's just we've talked about this but 
every team operates in largely the same way these days. I mean, there's definitely more homogeneity than there used to be. And every team has its quantitative analysis department and every team looks at the same sort of stats and there are wrinkles here and there and some teams are ahead of others. But for the most part, there's a lot of uniformity in how teams construct themselves. And so it's rarer to be able to pinpoint this organizational trait that stands out in as glaring a way as the Orioles just punting on international prospects. And it's a tough thing to surmount. Yeah. And they're not compensating for it by, you know, you'd think the easy way to compensate it is, you know, say, okay, we can't, you know, we're just accepting that to some extent we can't really develop our own pitchers. So we're going to try to develop, spend all our high draft picks on position players and try mm-hmm. to buy pitchers on the free agent market. And they haven't, you know, they've still spent top five picks on on pitchers who have busted by and large. And they're not, you know, in, in for the top free agents. So they've managed to get to the playoffs three times in five years. And there's a, you know, the, the oft quoted stat about how there's a certain span of time over which the Orioles were the winning winningest franchise yeah. in baseball. And, mm-hmm. you know, they managed to do that without a starting rotation, essentially. So, you know, maybe <laughs> yeah. it can be done. Maybe everybody else is stupid for investing any money in teenage pitchers. But it's, yeah, you know, just this with you know in concert with with the overall struggles to develop starting pitching to coupled with all the weirdness about Duquette signing free agents and then having Peter Angelos put his thumb on the scale during their their physical and flunking them and sending them back out into free agency which has happened a couple times Mm -hmm. it's it's a very strange organization Okay, so full disclosure, we were going to end the podcast right here. We originally did end the podcast right here, but events intervened. We cannot end yet because... Ben, the song, the song, I live for the song. What did Jerry DePoto do? What did Jerry DePoto Okay, Jerry DePoto made multiple trades today. This is DePoto After Dark, and we are joined by two Jerry DePoto consultants, Meg Rowley and Jeff Sullivan, Mariners experts. Hello, Meg. Hello. Hello, Jeff. Hi. Meg, do you want to do the honors and read the Jerry DePoto transactions? Sure. So the the headliner here today was that the Mariners traded uh, Boog Powell, who's a minor league outfielder, not the other Boog Powell, but a current Boog Powell, uh, to the A's for Yonder Alonso to shore up first base. Okay, sure. That's a good thing to do. Uh, so that was the, the big trade. And then on a smaller scale, uh, they traded a player to be named later, Anthony, I'm not going to say his last name. Savage. Savage. See, this is why we. we Former Michigan State left hand. Okay, we don't have to do the college baseball thing. And. (laughs) No, we don't. (laughs) And Luis uh, Renjifu, is that right? Uh, Big names. Yeah. Big names. Changing. Literal big names. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And they got uh, catcher uh, Mike Marjama, who. The, the beats, the Seattle beats have been saying that DePoto has been eyeing for a while, so that's fun. Uh, and Ryan Garten, who's a right handed pitcher. And they designated Tuffy Ghostwitch for assignment to make room for oh. some of those folks. So that happened. Hmm. Well, I'm glad we convened to do this. Thanks a lot, Jerry. How many players do you think DePoto is currently eyeing? 
All he of must them. have eyes. He is like Sauron or something. All he has eyes everywhere. His compound mm-hmm. vision. Yeah. yeah. He's looking at all, all of right. them. <laughs> Mariners well, are, are still only a game and a half out of the playoffs right now, which yeah. that is that is yeah. true. That's Although why Depoto's dealing. Felix... The Mariners have been one and a half games out of the playoffs since opening. <laughs> yeah. It has not budged. <laughs> and Felix just went back on the disabled list. So, you know, what, it, it was a weekend of, of moves and many feelings. All right. Well, we will end there. Thank you, Jeff and Meg, for your Jerry DePoto expertise. I can't believe you flew me out just for these two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we will be back, of course, with our regular episode on Thursday. You have been listening to The Ringer MLB Show, part of The Ringer Podcast Network, and we will talk to you next time. Things change. The weather changes. Your mood definitely changes. So why lock yourself into plans that might change? With Hotel Tonight, you don't have to, because you'll get incredible deals on awesome hotels even at the last minute. Booking on Hotel Tonight gives you the freedom and flexibility to play things by ear, while knowing you'll score a great price and a great place to stay. So download the Hotel Tonight app. So download the Hotel Tonight app to find seriously amazing deals now. Don't let scratches be the end of your sunglasses. Save your sunglasses and replace your lenses with Revent Optics. Revent Optics offers high-quality replacement lenses for any brand, starting at just $24. With over 500,000 customers worldwide and an average rating of 99.7%, Revent Optics guarantees incredible clarity and a perfect fit or your money back. Get 20% off your first order with code MLB at reventoptics.com MLB. That's R-E-V-A-N-T optics.com MLB. That URL is case-sensitive, so the R and the O are capitalized revitoptics.com slash MLB.